Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 119. We made it through 88 verses uh, last uh, Wednesday evening, 11 of division of the 22 Hebrew letters. I've entitled the message this morning, The Sufficiency of God's Word. So let's look at the first eight verses that Pastor Lane read for us earlier. Psalm 119, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord and blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all of your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. We're diving into the longest um, book in the Bible that has 176 verses. Psalm 117 is the shortest. It only has two. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. We call it an an alphabetical acrostic psalm. And what I mean by that is the first letter of each line follows through the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is called Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. And their second one is Beth, B-E-T-H. So it's sort of like the ABCs. Uh, For our vocabulary, these would be the ABCs. This is very well thought out. There's a pattern that emerges here that every letter is going to have eight verses. And so if you have every letter having eight verses and you do the math times 22, well, then you come up with 176 verses. Now, what's amazing about Psalm 119 is of the 176 verses that are there, all but two are going to contain some reference to the book that you're holding in your hand this morning. All but two. Now that had to take quite a deal of thought. Of course, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But again, it was also purposely done. And uh, it doesn't always say the Bible or God's word. But it makes reference to it this way. Sometimes it will use the word, the word, or sayings, or way, or judgments, or testimonies, or precepts, or commandments, your law, your statutes, or your faithfulness. Maybe about 10 different ways of saying the word of God. And so what we read through here this morning, every one of these verses has a reference to the Bible in it. Just let that sink in. And the, emph- the emphasis, of course, is the respect that they have uh, for guiding them and leading them in all manners of life. Always wanting to keep this book at foremost and, and, of course, up front. My question this morning is, is God's word really sufficient to guide us in life along with uh, what the Lord called the Holy Spirit who said he would teach you all things? Matter of fact, he said he would bring back to remembrance um, those things that are written in this book. Uh, 
Now, before you can outload information, doesn't it first have to be downloaded in? So what this means is that the Holy Spirit will uh, bring out at the appropriate time God's word, and he'll apply it to your situation. But obviously, God's word has to be embedded, first of all, in our heart. Somebody want to give me an amen or that? So the idea is to really get to know this book really, really well. And then to, to make sure that you have been baptized in God's Holy Spirit. And it's called being born again. And uh, with that equipment, it now gives us wisdom and discernment because the Bible clearly tells us that in the parable of the tares and the wheat, for example, Jesus actually laid out a parable about the world in which we live and the warfare that's going to take place. He says there's two things going on. There's the seed of the word of God, which the Son of Man brings. And then he says there's the tares. Looks like wheat. But these seeds have been sown by none other than Lucifer himself. And they're both going to grow together. So the picture is one of this. We have truth, the word of God. And then we have Satan, who has been in this world, planting tares ever since the Garden of Eden. And we're going to go right back to the the Garden of Eden. So how is one to know the difference between the two? And the answer is discernment. And we have to have a measuring line to tell us, well, this is right and this is wrong. Now, that plumb line, I'm going to suggest to you, is none other than the word of God itself. That teaches us, it corrects us. Well, this is, this is off the wall, but this is right on. Well, how do you know? Because I know what this book has to say about that particular subject or issue. Well, then the question arises, if there are false teachers out there today to deceive, and if there are false doctrines that exist, the next question would be, should we expose false doctrine publicly and false teachers and confront apostasy? Or shall we just live and let live? Or are we admonished from the book itself to contend earnestly for the faith. So before I dive in here and lay out the study that we have this morning, I want to know what does God's word say about confronting false teaching and false doctrine. Are you with me so far? Let's turn to the book of Jude. Right before the book of Revelation, it's only a chapter long, but the whole book is about false teachers and false doctrine. Basically, Jude divides them as uh, past and present. Past judgment that came when they rebelled in heaven, they're reserved in judgment. And then future ones that uh, are, are going to come. The whole book is an admonishment, admonishing us to be contenders. Let's look at verse three. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Why? Goes on in verse four to say, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out of this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a commandment 
directed towards the church through Jude that said, absolutely, you need to contend for the faith. Why? Because the enemy has snuck in unnoticed, very sly. And as, as a result, uh, Jude is saying, we marked these guys a long time ago and showed them the road and, and told them, you're out of here. But they've made their way back in, and uh, it's a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. And he said, so I don't want you to compromise. I don't want you to compromise with doctrine. I, I want you to be contenders for the true faith, and I want you to deal with it if uh, false doctrine comes in. Well, this morning, I'll be addressing some of those involved in false doctrine and false teachers. I will be naming names, and because we have the technology to do show, so I'm even going to show you what these false teachers look like. Let's begin by laying a little bit more of a uh, foundation, should we be doing this at all, publicly? So to answer that question, I need you to have to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to give you a moment to get there. 2 Timothy 3. Let me give you, the, as you're turning, a little bit of the background. Everybody gets mentored by somebody knowingly or unknowingly. The disciples were mentored by the Lord himself three years. And then he sent them out. And um, Timothy's mentor was the Apostle Paul. Paul took him under wing. And we'll read here er, a little bit earlier that he's, he's been brought up in the scriptures. And now he's addressing him. And in chapter 3, verse 10, this is what my Bible says above verse 10. Confronting apostasy. Now, in the first service, there was quite a few that had that also. Is there anybody here that has that in their Bible? Well, you guys got the good Bibles. All you other people need to get up to speed with what's going on here. I like it because it actually says confronting apostasy. Then verse 10 we read, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love and perseverance, persecution, affliction, happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Then 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, as for you, he's talking to Timothy now, I want you to continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that even from childhood, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, or correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Two things are being stated here. Look out for the imposters and the deceivers, and they themselves are being deceived. First of all, look out for them, Timothy. Number two, don't forget everything that you've been taught since you've been a kid. Don't forget everything that I've invested in you, Timothy. 
And know this, that the book that you're holding in your hand this morning is sufficient for all things. The book that you're holding, you don't need to add to it, you don't need to take away from it, you don't need to add this program or start this, that thing, or any other thing. This book right here is sufficient, and that's what verse 16 tells us, for doctrine, uh, for instruction, and everyday practical life, from um, how to be a good employee, to be a good husband, a good wife, um, how we will respond to difficulties, how we're to put others above ourselves. It's all here. It's all laid out. And so with that mandate, um, I do see that it brings us to the point, well, if we're going to stand against false doctrine and false teachers, then pastors cannot expose false doctrine or false teachers without telling you who they are. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? What if I just said, be careful for false teachers and, and false doctrine, and leave it at that? No. Um, when we get to the book of Job, don't be like Cain. Don't be like Balaam, who ran after money. Um, and um, Korah, who was rebellious. Name, name and names. Don't be like that. And we'll get there in a minute. Um, there's no way I can tackle a subject on a Sunday morning. I had to pick and choose. I'm hitting the tip of the iceberg. But I've broken it up into five different sections. And the first one is purpose-driven. The second one I've entitled people-pleasing. I thought that had a pretty good ring to it. The third one, the emergent movement. The fourth one, prosperity teachers that are out there today. And the fifth one, Mary just got done writing a track on, and that is um, false prophets, and in particular, the Kansas City prophets. I'm not going to touch on that because I have already way too many notes, and uh, she wrote a track that um, uh, the Kansas City uh, false prophet guys have been around for a long time. Rick Joyner, Mike Bickle, John Paul Jackson, Paul Kane. Bob Jones used to be a part of it, but but he's dead now. Paul Kane's been around forever and ever and ever. And um, then there's ones that they've made prophets, like Todd Bentley. And um, I can get sidetracked there, but I'm going to leave that for the track. They will be here, and you can pick them up on the welcome table next, next week. So I don't think we're going to get that far. But let's dive in, and let's start this morning off with the first one, Purpose Driven. The title itself bothers me because we're admonished that having begun in the spirit, are you going to finish in the flesh? And the idea there is that you're born again, you're excited, got a lot of zeal, maybe not a lot of knowledge, but at least it's the Holy Spirit that's working through you to be a witness for Christ. Well, we have that versus, well, why don't we um, figure out as many different programs as we can so that people can find a purpose and a meaning for their life. And uh, of course, the forerunner to this, and the first, we're going to be putting up quite quite a few pictures this morning, is um, Pastor Rick Warren, who's called America's Pastor. Um, He's the pastor of Saddleback Church, being called American Pastor. Before I dive into um, Saddleback, 
it's going to be really important that I lay a little bit of background work. Now, there's other people that are up there. Norman Vincent Peale is up there. Barry Siegel is up there. And Robert Schuller, who just recently died at the age of 88. All of these men have had some influence, and I'll bring in two others in just a minute here. But let's just start with Benny Siegel, because first of all, he's not a Christian, um, and let me explain who he is if you've never heard of him before. I'm going back to June of 1978. A Connecticut physician named Bernie Siegel attending a workshop that would completely change his life, including the way he practices medicine. As a result of a spiritual experience in his workshop, a guided visualization, he would eventually become a best-selling author and New Age leader in his book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. He describes this guided visualization. He said, I learned how to meditate. At one point, they led us in a direct meditation to find and meet my inner guide. I approached this exercise with all skepticism. One expert from a medical doctor. Still, I sat down, closed my eyes, and followed directions. I didn't believe it would work. But even if it did, I expected to see Jesus or Moses. Who else would dare appear inside a surgeon's head? Instead, I met George, a bearded, long-haired young man wearing an immaculate flowing white gown and a skull cap. I was incredibly, it was an incredible awakening for me because I hadn't expected anything to happen. George was spontaneous, aware of my feelings, an excellent advisor. He gave me honest answers, some of which I didn't like at first. All I know is that he has been an invaluable companion ever since his first appearance, My life is much easier now because he does all the hard work. Well, what Bernie Siegel doesn't know is that he just got demon-possessed by a demon. The Bible says that the devil can turn himself into an angel of light, and meditation is nothing more than a place where you actually make the invitation to have contact with your spirit guide. That tells me there's guidelines in the spiritual realm that God has set up. And I don't believe a person could just be demon-possessed. I believe you have to exercise your free will to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Somebody want to say amen to that? Were you forced to become a believer? Or did you acknowledge, Lord, I need you, and I invite you? Well, in the same way, Satan is deceptive through who... Uh, different chemicals or drugs or meditation. Um, Simple things as easy as a Ouija board or yoga has the potential to opening yourself up to that other realm and you have no idea what you might be getting yourself into. The Bible clearly tells us in Deuteronomy 18, listen you guys, when you come into the land that I'm gonna give you, no messing around with what they messed around with. No mediums, no witchcraft, no allowing your children to pass through the fire. For all that do such things are abomination to the Lord. And then he talks about stay away from familiar spirits. Well, if you go, what? what in the world is a familiar spirit? That's well, just a demon, a fallen angel. But clearly the Bible talks about it. Clearly the Bible warns us against it. So here we have Bernie Siegel getting demon-possessed 
Now I'm going to quote from my good friend uh, Warren Smith in his book, Deceived on Purpose, a play on words, of course, of Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. I quote Warren. I described Bernie Siegel at length because I was about to discover that Rick Warren suddenly and explicitly made reference to Bernie Siegel in chapter three of The Purpose Driven Life. He uses Siegel's name in conjunction with remarks that was making about people who have hope and a deep sense of life's purpose. Why do Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller, and Rick Warren all make specific references to author Bernie Siegel, a New Age leader with a spirit guide whose name is George? On paper, Siegel is an unlikely person for church figures to be quoting and referencing and even praising. That is, unless Siegel is a merging, overlapping, interconnecting link between the new age and the church, and the enemy subtly moving in and influencing what we're called and told is America's pasture. Rick Warren was mentored by Robert Schuller. He just died this last year at the age of 88, the Crystal Cathedral. Went into bankruptcy, 56 million bucks. The Roman Catholic Church bought him out. But what's interesting is Schuller had his own mentor. Robert Schuller's mentor was Norman Vincent Peale. My parents' generation grew up reading The Power of Positive Thinking. And now it's all about your power that you have with your thoughts. Well, um, Norman Vincent Peale influenced Robert Schuller. Robert Schuller influenced Rick Warren. And also, let me add two more people to the equation here. Here's the biggest influence in Rick Warren's life. We'll put his picture up. And his name is Peter Drucker. Now, if you're not, he's, he's Tony Blair's on the right and uh, Drucker is on the left. He has also uh, recently passed within the last several years. <clears throat> now, if you're in the business world, especially maybe in an, an executive position, you already know who Peter Drucker is. Let me just read a paragraph. Uh, simultaneously in the American secular world, Peter Drucker became a rising star as a notable management guru, achieving fame as a consultant to both General Motors and General Electric. His goal was to achieve optimum, optimum community in America, wherein an individual's needs are met from the cradle to the grave. Along the way, a person's worth is determined by a calculated system of accountability, which assigns value that measure achievement. Now, in Drucker's quest for optimum community, he discovered the most effective agent of changing the American life is the megachurch. At that point, Drucker and Rick Warren, a graduate of Fuller Seminary, they came together. Warren has affectionately boasted that Drucker has been his mentor for over 20 years. Warren has vigorously implemented Drucker's key ideas at the Saddleback Church, where his purpose-driven model has been pioneered with national and international attention. This part's important. 
Drucker has admitted that he himself is not a Christian. This all led, eventually, to Rick writing a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Ten years old right now. They're having their 10-year anniversary. The last documented estimate of the number of copies of The Purpose Driven Life was about 30 million copies. The book was named several years ago as one of the top 100 Christian books. Notice that changed the 20th century. So it has had a great influence on the culture and the church. But let me just add one more piece before we get done with the purpose-driven deception. And that is that it has a a lot broader uh, means to its ends here. And I can't think of a better book than than, um, uh, Paul Smith's book, The New World Order and 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 the Road to Ecumenicalism, something along those lines. He does an excellent job with this. The next person that I'd like to introduce you to that's connecting with Rick Warren, that would be Tony Blair. Tony Blair, of course, was the uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1997 to 2007. Upon retiring, he converted and became a Roman Catholic, and he has told us that he is going to dedicate the rest of his life so that we can bring about a one-world religion. Hmm, interesting. He sits on the Council of Foreign Affairs with Rick Warren and Tony Blair, and they've joined forces, and um, Tony Blair, what he wants is uh, major faiths to play a role in globalization. Are you guys tracking with me on this? On globalization. Why should our antennas be up right now? Because my Bible says someday soon there's going to be a one-world religion. And someday soon there's going to be a one-world government. And now that this is what he's giving his life to, and he's connecting with what America is called America's pastor. Goes on to say that his goal is to bridge the differences between faith and advance education and faith and globalism. All right, we'll leave uh, the purpose driven there And for sake of time, there's much more we can say about it. But let's move from purpose-driven to people-pleasing. And for that one, the largest church in America is pastored by this good-looking guy. And his name is Joel Osteen. Look at that smile. Joel Osteen is a pastor of Lakewood Church, Houston, Texas. Oh, they have between 45,000 and 48,000 people that show up. They fill up. They fill up the whole Houston arena down there. To me, Joel Osteen is really nothing more than a good-looking motivational speaker because I never hear the gospel whenever I hear him speak. He's been called out on the carpet in interviews by people that weren't even Christian and saying, isn't there more to the gospel than just being a better person? And why don't you talk about issues like sin and repentance. Mind you, this is coming from a commentator who's not a believer himself. And uh, he just smiles and just continues on his merry way. What can be really revealing about a person is the books that they write. And I'm just gonna name five or six of the books and see if you can connect some dots. First of all, 
One of his books says, you can, you will. The next book is, it's your time. Another one, how to become a better you. The other one is, your best life now. And the last one is, I declare. What do all these books have in common? Either the words I, me, or you in the title. Now I like talking about me. What about you? You know who I think his favorite musician is? Toby Keith. You know what I think his favorite song is? I want to talk about me. How many of you have heard that song? I'll just give you a couple lines. We talk about your heart, about your brains and your smarts, your medical charts and where you start. You know, talking about you makes me grin, but every now and then, I want to talk about me. Want to talk about number one, want to talk about number one. Oh me, oh my, oh me. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you usually or occasionally, but most of all, I want to talk about me. I think that'd be the number one song for, for Joel and his, uh, well, let's face it, we love, well, let, let, let me put it this way, just to show you how much we really do love ourselves, Jesus said, love your neighbor as, and what does that say? That means we, we like ourselves quite a bit. And if you want to talk about me from the pulpit, Make me feel better. Oh, go ahead, scratch my ear all day long. I love it. Except my Bible doesn't tell me that. It tells me just the opposite. It tells me I'm supposed to deny myself. And it's not about myself. Matter of fact, there's not a whole lot good about me that the Bible talks about. So we have a problem. And we could uh, talk about Joel and his... Uh, um, people-pleasing theology, but that's, that's what it is. It's nothing more than um, um, make you feel good so that you can go out of here on a Sunday morning just feeling happy and slappy and feeling better about yourself. Number two on the list of people-pleasing is uh, in the Midwest, instead of uh, Saddleback, we have the Willow Creek Church and Pastor Bill Hybels. We'll put Bill's picture up. They claim more than 20,000 worshipers at... There's six regional campuses each weekend. The Willow Creek Association claims to be an international evangelical Christian association, notice, with more than 9,000 member churches from 90 denominations and 40 different countries. There are five that are members in our valley here, and yes, you're gonna have to do your own homework on finding out who those are. Bill Heibel? founded the church on the marketing ideas of Peter Drucker, oh, there he is again, who successfully applied them to business management before directing his attention toward the megachurch. Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Bob Bulford are all mentored by Peter Drucker, and all three of them seem to have been mesmerized by him. Drucker plainly denied being a born-again Christian and was heavily influenced by a mystic, a Kierkegaard. Few would disagree that Willow Creek Community Church has been one of the most influential churches in America over the last 30 years. Willow, though its association has promoted a vision of a church 
that has a big, I gotta say this word carefully, programmatic, okay? Programmatic and it's comprehensive. I, I see it more as a problematic, more than programmatic. The vision has been heavily influenced by the methods of secular businessman James Twitchell. In his new book, Shopping for God, reports that outside Bill Heibel's office hangs a poster which says, what is our business? Who are our customers? What does the customer value? Directly or indirectly, this philosophy of ministry, church should be a big box with programs for people at every level of spiritual maturity to consume and engage and impact, and I had to write this out, and it has impacted, this author said, every evangelical church in the country. I had to write it out, and I said, well, you didn't, not here. (laughs) So almost every evangelical church in the country. So what happens when the leader of Willow Creek stands up and says in 2007, we've made a major mistake, and the headlines were, Willow Creek repents. And I, I was just wishing it was true. Is, is it true? Did, did they really get it? And what they did, if, if you're not familiar with how they went about establishing the church, is they did demographic studies. And they went out into the, into the neighborhood and said, what would you like to see at a church? And we'll make that church through you. That's pretty much Drucker's philosophy. What do you want? And we'll meet the need. Well, they did that. But then, after 25 years or so in the ministry, they did one of their own studies themselves to see how successful they actually were. And now I'm going to quote Bill Heibel. Some of the stuff that we put millions of dollars into, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually. When the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things we didn't put that much money into and didn't put much staff against and stuff our people are crying out for. Gee, I wonder if they might have been crying out for this. Just a thought. What's interesting is, I said, okay, we'll see if this repentance is genuine. Let's just see who's gonna speak at their next conference. And when we looked to see who the speakers were, the keynote speaker was Erdwin McManus, who is an emergent new, new age leader. Every year, annually, um, Willow Creek has a leadership conference for these 9,000 other churches and denominations that are out there. Um, this year, it's already sold out, and um, they have 7,000 people that they can sit in Willow Creek. It'll cost you 190 bucks to, to take it in. So I sat down and I did the math. I went 190 times 7,000 people is 1330000 Dollars. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You see, because all around the country, I had Mary go, actually, there's, there's 400 of the 9,000 that will put up satellites that will beam the conference into where your church is so that you don't have to go to Chicago. You can just go to a local church that is one of their key churches. There's 400 of them. Well, I said, Mary, what do you think? Of these 400... What do you think the average attendance would be? And uh, certainly it wouldn't be 7,000, but let's be real conservative and say just 300. So we did the math with that. 
300 times uh, 400 of these churches. It took us a while to find out what that cost was, but we eventually found out that also was 190 bucks. So after doing the math of 400 churches with an average of 300 people at $190, you come up with $22,800,000, add the $1,330,000, and you're talking one conference bringing in $24 million. Now, our conference is a whole lot cheaper. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. My Bible says, freely we have received. So freely give. And if you really want to feed the flock, how can we charge them? And so we don't want to do that. I'm not saying it's wrong to take a collection. Paul did, okay? He said to one of the churches, he says, I'm going to be passing through, and when I'm going to be passing through, I'm going to take a collection for, for the poor saints down in Jerusalem. You know who those poor saints were? The apostles. So he says, but I want you to take it before I get there so I could just pick it up and take it on to them. Nothing wrong. We're supposed to, supposed to tithe. We're supposed to take love offerings. And so we'll lose money on this. And, um, and that's okay because I don't care as long as we can get the word out. I mean, if, if the Lord has your life, what he's got your pocketbook too, right? And so it shouldn't be an issue, but it's one thing doing that it's a whole other thing, what we call fleecing the flock and um, taking advantage of the numbers and the amount of resources that will come in. His wife, Lynn Hybels, is doing conferences right now around the world called Christ at the Checkpoint Conference. It's a play on words with the checkpoints going into Jerusalem. She is pro-Palestinian and calls Israel an occupying power. So just by that alone, it tells you a lot where they are uh, as far as Bible prophecy and um, the state of Israel in particular. I will move on from um, the uh, pleasing into the emergent. And uh, it's way too lengthy to put everybody's name and picture up, but I'm going to put some up there. And you won't be able to, let's put it up, guys. Let's put the definition of the emergent church movement. I got a short definition off the internet from Eric Barger. The emergent church movement, and uh, I don't think you can read it, but so I'll read it for you, takes its name from the idea that the culture has changed and a new church should emerge in response. It apparently grew out of a discussion group inside the Young Leaders Network in the 1990s, but also had deep roots in the seeker style of what do you want to see in a church type methodology. To emergence, Christianity should be this. Experience over reason. Spirituality over doctrine and absolutes. Images over words. Feelings over truth earthly justice over salvation. Here's the big one. Social action over eternity. They believe in dominionism and they have no belief in Bible prophecy. If I was to put it bluntly, the emergent church movement is a complete redefinition of Christianity. 
It is unquestionably the new liberalism. However, don't wait for emergent church uh, teachers to use the term emergent. They've already figured out they don't want to be labeled that way. But here's how you can spot them for yourself. And let me just give you their names. I, I tried to put as many as we could up there. Rob Bell is one of the ringleaders up there. Mark Driscoll. Um, the Lord has been dealing with him in X 29. Dan Kimball, Phyllis Teckel, Doug Pageant, Erwin McManus, Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, Donald Miller, Tony Jones, Francis Khan, Brian McLaren, I would be considered one of the ringleaders, and Sean Claiborne, a big time into the social aspects. And Tony Campalo, and of course, Jim Wallace, our president's spiritual advisor, um, who tries to pass himself off as a Christian. He's a Marxist, socialist, communist. And that's simple. Um, I'll just simply leave it at that, and I hope I've challenged you to find out if what I just said was true. Uh, we have a track about, about him. All right. <clears throat> we'll leave the emergence at that. And um, for sake of time, I want to get into now the prosperity teachers. Did we put up on the screen who the speakers are going to be at uh, Willow Creek? I don't think we did. Let's put those guys up. Now, if this is a Christian organization, you would expect Christians to be speaking to leaders. Here we have uh, Jimmy Carter. We have Bono. Um, We have Howard Schultz, who is the CEO of Starbucks, and um, President Clinton. None of them know Jesus Christ, and now they're speaking to how to be a Christian in leadership position, and they don't even bring in Christians to do their work. I also happen to know, I don't know if it is now, But even in the early days of Willow Creek and why I distanced myself from them right away was I knew one of the guys that was playing on their worship team and he was giving me the lowdown. He said, I'm the only Christian that leads worship at Willow Creek. If I remember, his name was Russ Daughtry. I'm pulling that one way from way back. We used to have him play at the cafe. But um, I said, well, what do you mean? He says, no, just go out to get the best musicians you can. And so they're worshiping the Lord and they don't even know the Lord. They're playing music. So, um, but again, if it brings in the crowds, then that's how you would come about bringing them in. Sorry I passed that up, but you can take that down now. Let's move on to the prosperity teachers. And um, we'll put some of them up there. What we're looking at here is Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let me start with Copeland. The Copelands are leaders in what is commonly referred to as a word-faith movement, or the prosperity gospel, which hinges on three false doctrines. Number one, God's will for believers is continual prosperity, health, and victory. Number two, faith is an invisible substance, a force similar to electricity or gravity, and the words of the Bible are literally contained containers of that force. This 
faith force is released through positively speaking and believing God's promises, resulting in financial prosperity, health, healing, success, and victory. They point out that many miracles in the Bible involve someone speaking. Therefore, words spoken in faith must have power. The flip side is the faith power can be neutralized by doubt, or maybe you have negative thoughts, and sin in the believer's life. Now imagine praying for a person who's walked and loved the Lord, and all of a sudden they get stricken with the disease. You pray for them, and they don't get healed, like Paul's sword in the flesh. Was it God's will or purpose? Can you imagine laying that guilt trip on top of them and say, well, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. Obviously, you're the problem. If you had enough faith, then obviously you'd be healed. I've, I've had many a, p- a person in my office who were involved in churches like this and had such guilt and condemnation on them because it's my problem because I don't have enough faith. And I said, let me tell you something. We live in a fallen world of sin. Godly people get sick every single day. Sometimes God heals them. Sometimes he doesn't. But Paul says it doesn't matter. Uh, when I'm weak, then I'll be strong. If, if, Lord, you've allowed this affliction into my life, then I'm going to praise you for it. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. But to tell a person that has been prayed for, well, we prayed for you, so obviously, you know, confess your sins, sort of like a Job thing. Or, you know, if you just had a little bit more faith, then everything would be fine. Boy, well, we talk about it, kicking about a guy when he's down. My Jesus says he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't squelch a bruised reed. And that's another way of saying you don't hurt somebody when they're already suffering. What does it say? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Make sure you're loving on them and comforting them and showing, and showing the love of Christ. All right, the word of faith. Teachers, they misrepresent scripture. They take them out of context to make all the sound biblical Copeland justifies his unscholarly approach to theology by claiming that logic and reason have nothing to do with faith. Believers are not to be led by logic, unless you're Spock, of course, and that's a different Vulcan thing, and you can justify that. We are not even to be led by good sense. This attitude allows him to play fast and loose with the scriptures bending them to fit his own interpretation. I'm going to give you a little taste, rather than read it, of just how far off the wall um, Kenneth Copeland has gotten since he was mentored by Kenneth Hagen. And I got a video clip that runs for 2 minutes and 15 seconds. And basically what he's going to tell you is that you are a God yourself. And you you wouldn't believe it unless you heard it, so I'm going to let you listen to it. Here it is. God came from heaven, became a man, made man into little God, went back to heaven as a man. He faces the Father as a man. I face devils as the Son of God. You see what I'm talking about? You say, Benihim, am I a little God? You're a son of God, aren't you? You're a child of God, aren't you? You're a daughter of God, aren't you? What, what else are you? 
Quit your nonsense. What else are you? If you say, I am, you're saying, I'm a part of him, right? Is he God? Are you his offspring? Are you his children? You can't be human. He doesn't even draw a distinction between himself and... Never, never. You never can do that in a covenant relationship. Do you know what else that has settled then tonight? This hue and cry and controversy that has been spawned by the devil to try and bring dissension within the body of Christ that we're gods. I am a little God. Yes. Yes. I have his name. I'm one with him. I'm in covenant relation. I am a little God. Critics, you are anything that he is. Yes. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. I mean a reproduction of himself. And in the Garden of Eden, he did that. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not um, subordinate to God even. And Adam is as much like God as you could get. Just the same as Jesus, when he came into the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He wasn't a lot like God. He's God manifested in the flesh. And I want you to know something. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. Didn't know that. I can tell you one thing for sure. I know that you're not God, and I'm really sure I'm not. Okay? But I want you to, I want you to see something here that hasn't changed since the Garden of Eden, since he brought up the garden. And that is that the enemy's MO, his method of operation, has never changed. It's always been the same. So go back to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bibles, and we'll read the first five verses. God's word was clearly laid out, and then it was clearly challenged. What's happened to the church today? God's word is clear, powerful, sharper than any two edged sword. It's clear, but what has the enemy done? but changed it and added to it and taken away from it. So we read in Genesis 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said? And there's the challenge, challenging the word of God. You shall not eat of the tree of life of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It's the oldest lie. Here's the first lie. He hasn't been changing it um, ever since then, and um, the whole idea, especially in, in Hinduism, is reaching that point of euphoria, where you're in one with the cosmos and you actually become one with the universe. And it's, it puts on and takes on different shapes and forms. All right, let's make our way back to, we'll begin to close up this morning, back to Second Timothy chapter 3. 
Why am I not surprised of all that we see in the tip of the iceberg that we touched on these uh, different false doctrines and false teachers that have crept into the church? Why am I not surprised? Well, I'm not surprised because God's word tells me that in the last times, that's exactly the way it's going to be. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Know this, that when in the latter days perilous times will come, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud of blasphemy, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but deny its power. All right, Paul has laid it out to young Timothy. Last days, that's what it's gonna be like. And then he gives instructions on what we're to do. He says, from such people turn aside. He doesn't say join hands with Tony Blair and let's see if we can get the whole world to agree on something. All we have to do is compromise our doctrine. No, Jesus said, don't think for a minute that I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to bring division. I'm gonna tell you the truth, and when the truth hits, some are gonna believe it and some aren't. That's gonna cause division. So if some come in and bring something other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not not supposed to reach across the aisle and say, hey, let's see if we can work things out here. No, it's clear. You simply turn away from such people. See you later, Jack. Bye. This is what we believe. This is who we are. And uh, we're not going to compromise with it in any way, shape, or form, or doctrine. So if you want to hold to some other thing other than that, then I hope you find somebody to fellowship with, but it's not, not here. Turn aside. Let's go over to chapter 4, verse 3. Why else am I not surprised? Paul says, for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. Well, I don't want to hear about denying myself and picking up my cross. I don't want to hear that it was good for me that I was afflicted and uh, so on and so forth. They will not adhere to sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, and do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Gang, it really gets down to where we started. It's the question. Is the Bible sufficient for your life? Will it get you to point from point A to point B? Well, look again at verse 16. It's interesting if you do a study in the Bible of all the 316s. Well, here's one. 316. 2 Timothy 316. All scripture. Psalm 119. Every other verse. All the verses except two are about God's word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God might be equipped in what? Whatever you need. Whatever situation arises, you're able to filter it through. Well, I wonder what God's word has to say about that. Or I wonder what God's word has to say about this. So once we have it in us, the Holy Spirit is able to speak to us and says, this is what you do, and this is how you handle it, and you're on solid ground. 
Jesus said, you build your life on that solid rock and when the storms come, you'll still stand. But if you build it on any of these other programs, you're building on sand, gang. And when the hard times come, you're not gonna have a footing to stand on. This is the solid rock. Somebody wanna give me an amen and that? This doesn't change. Heaven and earth will pass away. It'll all change. But Jesus went as far as to say, it's so important that um, even to, assuredly I say heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will by no means pass away till it's fulfilled. A jot is like a dot in front of an I. And a tittle is a little comma. I mean, we're talking about the smallest things, but if it's in this book, it's, he's gonna, to that extreme, make sure that it's fulfilled. Colossians 2 is an absolute must in this Bible study this morning because we're told ahead of time, Colossians 2, 8, beware. How many times have you been told by pastors, look out, <laughs> beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of Peter Drucker. <laughs> now, my Bible says traditions of men, but we know who we're talking about here. According to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. The Lord himself says that he's magnified his word above his own name. And this word of God is powerful and it's alive. Dwight Moody, when he was in Chicago, wanted to do street evangelism. Isn't that a great name, Dwight? I just got a nice ring to it. Well, he he wanted to get people's attention and nobody was listening. So he took his Bible and he threw it on the ground and he took his coat off and he threw it on the Bible and he, he started jumping around and saying, it's alive, it's, it's alive. All of a sudden he had his crowd. Everybody wanted to know what's alive underneath the coat. And he pulls off the coat, he says, it's the Bible and it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Mr. Moody had his crowd and he was quite an evangelist. And as, as a result, um, many people right before the great Chicago fire experience salvation because this book is alive and um, the Lord wants to be able to pull it out and use it. It's called a sword for a reason and we're living in times when we need to know it really, really well. All right, let's leave this on a positive note. Let's go back to the judgment book on false teachers and prophets, Jude. And there's a message now in closing just for us. We've had our Bible study this morning. Is the Bible sufficient? And are we to contend? Are we to expose false teachers and false doctrines? In my mind, absolutely yes, because that's what we're instructed to do in verse three and four of Jude. Are we to name names? Well, Jude did, Cain, Korah, Balaam, Paul did, Alexander the coppersmith, and so on and so forth. But having said all that, um, he says in verse 17 to you guys that are just, you know, you're being faithful. You're not compromising with the trends that are out there. You're staying the course. We'll pick it up with verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that 
They told you that there would be mockers in the last days who walked according to their own ungodly lust. They're sensual persons who caused division, having not the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the exhortation to keep the only commandment he really gave us, and that's to love on one another and keep looking for the Lord's coming. You love me, I love you, and we look for the Lord's return, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like this, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others save with fear. Think this through with me. He's saying, while we're living this out, he said some people you need to be really, really gentle with. Have compassion on them. Know your audience, and if you need to be really, really gentle, because they're very, very fragile, then make that distinction, show some compassion, and be patient, and keep working on them. Others, on the other hand, verse 23, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating the very garments defiled by their flesh. Some people are in such trouble that they don't know it. They need to be hit alongside of the head with the gospel and say, listen, buddy, you better clean up your act because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. If you keep hardening yourself and keep fighting against the Lord, there really is a place called hell, and Jimi Hendrix is not going to be there. You're going to be there all by yourself. It's going to be outer darkness, And the very last thing you're going to ever have in your mind forever and ever and ever is a great white throne judgment where the Father says, depart from me. And that will be the last thing that you'll remember forever and ever and ever. Well, you say, Dwight, that's pretty heavy words. It's balanced out here. Some you're compassionate with. Some you're gentle with. Know who you're talking to. Didn't the Lord say, be wise as serpents, right? Harmless as doves. But on others, you know, he was, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you guys are going to burn in hell. He came straight out and told them, you whited sepulchers, you vipers, and so on and so forth. And that's just straight out warning from the Son of God to false teachers and, and religious hypocrites. And so how did he treat them? Well, he put the fear of God in them, or was, he was trying to. You know, I think it's okay to put the fear of God into some people who are maybe a little cocky or need to be brought down a couple notches. I think that's what they're saying here. All right, now the doxology, the ending. Oh, my good friend Bill Waters puts this to music. I miss him. He's been with the Lord for some years now, but he put this to music. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And all of God's people said, let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we look at Psalm 119, we see it's all about your word. And your word tells us that this book is not about us, but the volume of the book is all about you. So, Lord, might you be glorified as we study the scriptures. And, Lord, might we glean um, the truths. I pray for boldness in these last days to be able to call a spade a spade. 
to expose false doctrine and not be afraid to do so, and then to proclaim the truth boldly. And we thank you for your word this morning and pray as your people go out this afternoon. Bless the rest of our day and our week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.